I'm Natalie Alexander, and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the United Nations Library, Geneva. In this episode, we begin our conversation series, where we sit down with various people from different fields in and outside the UN to hear their insights and their stories. We begin with a conversation with the current Director General at UN Geneva, Michael Moller. At the end of this month, June 2019, he'll complete his term as Director General after five and a half years in the role. The director of the library, Francesco Pisano, sat down with him to hear his thoughts on his time leading UN Geneva, as well as his 40 years of service at the UN and his thoughts on the role of multilateralism today. Enjoy. So I'm here with Michael Muller, who's the current Undersecretary General and Director General of UN Geneva. And we're here on this a uh, beautiful day here in Geneva, the Palais des Nations, for a conversation. Mr. Muller, you joined the UN 40 years ago. 40 years of career, it's a long time. Why did you join the UN in the first place? Well, actually, I was on my way into the Danish Foreign Service. Um, I had passed the exams and the interviews. And then one day I get a call from, um, from the ministry saying that there's a, a job in Geneva, a JPO, a junior professional officer job, that they thought that I might be interested in and good at. So they sent me to Geneva for an interview at the UN High Commission for Refugees. And um, I got the job. I looked at a little bit closer at what the organization was doing and liked uh, its objective and its, uh, its, uh, its calling. And these are normally jobs that are given for two, maximum three years. So I thought this was a good way to start. And I did. And I got stuck. And how old were you then? I was um, 23, I think, or something like that. Uh, yeah, 23, 25. No. Yeah, anyway, around, uh, around 23 or 24. This was in 1979, so you can count it. I was born in 52. And then you got stuck, you said. And then I got stuck. I, I absolutely loved what I was doing. I was very lucky in arriving at a moment where um, uh, very, very shortly after I, I started the job, three months after, um, the refugee situation in the world exploded and UNHCR transitioned from being a mom and pop store to a supermarket. And that meant that uh, people like me, youngsters who had just arrived there, were suddenly given um, responsibilities and opportunities to do things that they would never have gotten under normal circumstances within a million years. So I ended up working about 18 hours a day um, on two different, completely different files. In the morning I was dealing with the northern countries, northern European countries. And in uh, the afternoon, I was dealing with both people in Southeast Asia. And it was an incredible learning curve, and which got me hooked. It was the sort of the, the first years of uh, the creation of what became and what becomes in most of us who work for the UN, this very deeply entrenched UN bug that one gets um, because uh, you're part of something that is much, much bigger than your own. And you actually get into situations, um, as I have throughout these 40 years, where you see the results of your own input and your own work on the lives of people. And that is incredibly satisfying. And so this, the rest of your career maintain this kind of promise? Or if you were to divide your 40 years in chunks, 
what will be you know part one, part two, part three, or part four? No, but there were very different parts, and uh, but it was a path that was designed, um, and I was lucky enough to be able to do it to make sure that I acquired as many different kinds of experiences as possible, both at in headquarters and in the field, and in different kinds of organizations and different parts of the system, so that as I moved up the ladder, I gave myself a, a level and a, and, a, and a foundation of experience that was as broad as possible, that allowed me to be um, to, to sort of multitask, if you want, as one often has to do in these jobs, uh, to the best possible uh, ability that I could muster. So it was um, in and out of New York, in and out of Geneva, back to the field. Um, um, so over these years, I've been weaving in and out of different kinds of jobs, and all of them uh, have been incredibly uh, exciting. Uh, many of them have uh, given the opportunity of, of having a real impact. And um, I have been amazingly lucky uh, to, uh, to be given those opportunities in many different parts of the world in practically every, every, every continent of the planet and, um, and get to know cultures, get to know people, get to know circumstances, but always fairly close to the burning points of the day in political and geopolitical terms. Um, so it has been just amazingly interesting. And only a few of us get the amazing luck of ending up at USG and as you turn back and look at your career, you can see the path that you went through as, as a young and middle manager, etc. And now you can see it from the top. And that gives you a different perspective than the one we normally have in, in this career. So for those listeners that would like to join the UN, there are, <clears throat> there are many young players who want to join the UN today. What would you say is the main change? What has changed now? What has changed in the world um, right now compared to um, what I have seen in the past decades is that we're seeing an unfortunate, an unfortunate walking away from multilateralism. Um, very clearly, um, countries walking away from international law, from the norms and the regulations and the standards that we have worked so hard on for the past several years, several decades, I would say. And... Um, walking away from a system that was built after the Second World War that has provided humanity with an absolutely unprecedented level of uh, well-being uh, and peace uh, and security that humanity has never seen before. Uh, when you look at the statistics, um, the human race has never been as well off as it is today in any kind of um, human indicator that you care to use. And walking away from that, um, frankly, seems to be incredibly stupid, but also um, not just because of the fact itself and because we know that the multilateral approach to the management of our planet has given us this extraordinary level of well-being, but also because by any logical measurement, when you look at the existential problems that the planet and the world is facing right now, there is simply no way that we're going to be able to uh, solve them unless we do it together. And this impetus for a greater collaborative approach to management of our planet is um, is under is under stress right now. I think that it is a temporary uh, situation we're in. Um, many governments are feel on the defensive, um, and uh, they're closing their doors. They're bringing up the the bridges and thinking they can go uh, on their own. When it's quite clear to me, at least, 
that not even the biggest countries or the biggest organizations um, can uh, even hope of solving some of these problems if, uh, if they go it uh, alone. So I think that is one of the biggest problems that we're seeing. We're also seeing, I mean, one thing is the structure and the, the way that we use it or the way that it's going to transition because clearly the old structure doesn't work anymore and we need to come up with something that is more inclusive, more collaborative. But it's also um, what has changed is really the level of the threat that the problems that we face and that, uh, that, we, that are challenging us today um, are compared to what we had uh, even when we looked at the First or the Second World War. The problems we have today are of such existential nature, um, particularly climate change, um, that it almost defies um, our ability to, to, to really get together um, and, uh, and do what needs to be done. It's quite clear that we know, we have the knowledge, we have the structures, we have the human capital, we even have the financial capital, but our government structures and the governing structures or governance structures are such that they are inimical to this long-term approach um, uh, that is needed to be implemented right now. One of our biggest structural problems that we have is a gap that is increasingly growing between short-term political systems and the long-term solutions that we need to apply to, to the problems of today. And unless we manage to close that gap, um, and we manage to do so really fast, we are going to be in a very deep trouble. Now, we created these systems after the Second World War that were precisely um, created in, to provide that bridge between the short term, the long term, between um, different actors, between different uh, approaches, different cultures. And um, it's called the United Nations um, and its partners. So there is a certain irony, to put it mildly, at the fact that at the moment in history when we need this international structure more than ever, we're also seeing a moment in history where it's being attacked more than ever. And somehow we're going to need to figure out a way of getting around that. Now, you know, reality tends to impose itself sooner rather than later on everybody and everything. And this will also happen. We are now in, a, in an interesting transition phase in governance terms where we are moving from one way of managing our affairs from an old uh, state and government-centric approach to, to governance, um, the, the Westphalian system often called, to a much more multi-stakeholder, polycentric, whatever we want to call it, um, system where you have a whole slew of different actors that are going to be sitting around the decision-making table and who are crowding around that table, but who are not yet structured in a way that, um, that is acceptable and certainly in many cases are not legitimized yet. Um, but that is happening. We are watching now an evolution of multi-stakeholder governance structures at the lower thematic levels that have worked incredibly well, for example, in health or in, in, uh, in primary education or some of the more very specific areas where they have these multi-stakeholder and multi-partner governance structures have been much more um, effective um, than, um, than anything else that we have right now. So we are trying to see, we're seeing now how the world is trying to leverage and to scale up these experiences into something that can be applied to a much broader governance structures, both at the state, regional, and global level. There's a number of other issues that are playing in that will have a huge impact on how we move ahead. One, of course, is demographics. Um, we are going to be 
Uh, we are already, a majority of us are living in cities on the planet. There will be more and more of us doing so. By 2050, we expect at least 75% of the global population to be living in cities. That changes and is already changing completely the way we manage the affairs of our citizens and we provide them with this, the services that, uh, that they expect and they need. Technology is coming at us at a frightening speed, um, certainly at a speed that is very hard, certainly for organizations, for states, for individuals to adapt to if they try to do it alone. And here again, if we want to be able to, um, to adapt to those technological changes in a way that makes sure that we are the ones in the driver's seat as far as our future is concerned, and that we make sure that we humanize technology rather than allowing things to technologize humanity, uh, we are going to have to work together on that front as well. So all of these different building blocks are moving slowly towards each other in, in a new pattern, if you want, new kind of tecton tectonic plates that uh, are going to give us a very different way of, uh, of uh, managing in the future. So this is a long, uh, long answer to your question about what I see are changes. These are very fundamental changes. They are existential changes, and they are changes that, uh, depending on how we address them and how we solve them, will, will spell uh, what kind of future humanity has over the next not many decades, quite a few decades, I think, um, because our, our time is short and we are in a rush. So this is, I guess, your notion of a multilateralism going through a phase of transition. Definitely, yes. You have been heard saying this, you have been read writing that. Yeah. And I think that what you just described illustrates a little bit what kind of transition multilateralism is undergoing. But I would like to know, how do you think the UN as a system is fit for that transition or for whatever may come after that transition? Well, it's trying to get itself fit. Now, let me just step back a little bit because uh, we, what I painted before was a rather um, alarmist picture, but the fact is that there are also very positive elements happening. Now, one of the things that I have a problem with is when people and our press across the world keep talking about a multilateralism in crisis. Or, uh, and that is, if we continue talking like that, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy as many of these negative approaches happen. We are in a, multi, in a, in a, in a situation of a, of a multilateralism and transition. We know that the one that we've had for the past 70 years doesn't work as well as it should. In some cases, it doesn't work at all. All you have to look at is the Security Council of the UN. But we also know that a number of things have happened um, that point the way in the direction that we need to go. And I've just alluded to it um, up to a point. Uh, four years ago, almost four years ago, the world gave itself a whole series of... Uh, of new rules and regulations, uh, the climate change agreement in Paris, the agreements on the uh, sustainable development goals, the agenda 2030 for development, um, the financing for development agreement, um, the way that we're going to manage our cities in a smarter way. All of these together have created a quite extraordinary global roadmap that um, more and more people are latching onto. And I would particularly point out, uh, and point two rather, the Sustainable Development Goals, whose fundamental principles ha are speaking to an increasing number of people from all walks of life in a way that I've never seen before. We are really having in our hands a global blue blueprint and a global roadmap 
that is showing us the way forward. And that way forward is a different kind, much more inclusive, much more integrated kind of, uh, and much more practical and operational um, kind of um, multilateralism that is already beginning to show um, its promise. The implementation of these goals, the 17 goals, um, is clearly asymmetric at this time. We are now in 2019. But we are, we are certainly beginning to see the level of cooperation and coordination that is happening at all levels of society, whether it's at the communal level or village level, at the state level, at the, at the regional level or the international level, that is beginning to gel into something that is becoming more and more impactful. And this is also happening in the UN system. Certainly here in Geneva, where you have the greatest concentration of agencies and organizations um, compared to other duty uh, stations around the world. Um, and you have a, in international Geneva a operational hub and a technical hub, the likes of which you don't have anywhere else. And that, the very fact that it is technical, in an increasingly fragmented and political terms world, um, and difficult uh, situation on the planet right now is a place where people then come for, for, for solutions and they come for, uh, for, for, for sitting down and coming up um, with very practical, with very technical, um, non-politicized solutions to a lot of the problems that, we, uh, that afflict us today. And we are seeing here a, a readiness to break down the silos that have been built over the past 70 years to sit down and share information, share best practices, leverage each other's um, strengths and resources to an extent that I have never seen before. I often use that as an example, as sort of a mini epiphany that, uh, that I had when a colleague of mine came to see me one day a couple of years ago and said, look, we've just realized that the top bureaucrats, the top two levels of uh, 30 UN organizations were getting together once a week in somebody's home in the evening to discuss how they could leverage each other's mandates, knowledge, experience, and resources into a better collective implementation of these goals. Nobody asked them to do it. I certainly, in my 40 years, have never seen that happen before in the system. And it tells me that there's a mindset change going on, and it's happening quite rapidly. And it's a very welcome one. So personally, this is where I get my optimism and my, my, uh, my, my kind of positive outlook on the fact that it is possible to solve the crisis that we have now, or the crisis in plural, that it is possible to bring to bear our collective knowledge. We have a new sector general who's in the process of um, trying to reform the system, and, and precisely to the end that I have just been talking about, to make sure that it is much more effective and impactful on the ground, where it needs to be, in the countries and in the communities of the, the citizens of our member states. and. Um, I hope that we manage. The interesting thing here is that the UN is not alone any longer. Um, we are seeing more and more the partnerships and the, uh, that are being created, whether it's between the UN and its partners and the, the, the business community, the NGOs, the academic community, everybody who has something to bring to bear on the successful implementation of these goals in terms, to, in, in terms of making sure that uh, we maintain our planet um, as a place where it's possible to live a fulfilling life in, uh, in dignity and in peace uh, for our children, for their children. That is a question mark right now, and that question mark needs, needs to be answered, and the only way that is going to be answered is by collective action. Clearly, the, the UN Geneva is rather 
different from the other places in the UN that you have seen, that I have seen, and other colleagues. And you said it, one of the reasons is the concentration of technical agencies. There are many others, including this ecosystem of multilateralism and multilateral affairs that yes. uh, lives and, and, and proliferates in this, in this city. When you took up the helm of um, UNOC five years ago, five and a half almost, it was still this concept of UNOC. Today, many people, including ourselves internally, talk about UN Geneva, which I think is much more, uh, is much better to describe what we're about. And I would like to ask you, things have really changed during your tenure, and because it was you, these things, many of these things have changed, so that today, as a staffer myself, I hardly recognize UN Geneva uh, UNOC, sorry, in UN Geneva. So I wanted to ask you, all along this time, what was really the challenge that you saw up front because UN Geneva is so different, because the situation here is different from any other duty station? Did it put more pressure on you as the top manager here, try to make the system do stuff that he hadn't done before or maybe was, wasn't even designed to do? No, I wouldn't say pressure. Um, let me tell you that um, one of the things I, I was lucky at happening to me very early on in my career was I was in situations that uh, demanded incredibly fast and outside-the-box action in order to save lives. And what that taught me was that in order to make the system work, you sometimes have to do it in spite of itself. But the fact is that the bones are good and this, the, 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 the substance is there. You just need to rearrange it sometimes. And the rearrangement also means that you have to uh, find ways of unleashing the potential of every single one of the staff members. Working, the UN attracts the most extraordinary people. It's just that the system, like any bureaucratic system, whether it's an international one or a national one, has a way of stifling these kinds of uh, excellent, uh, excellent, uh, abilities and you just have to open up the box and let them out and this is what we've done here uh, over the past six years and two amazing results the moment you empower people and you tell them that it's okay to take risks it's okay to fail sometimes but we'll have their back that it's okay to think outside the box and come up with new and imaginative solutions then stuff starts to happen and frankly unless we do so today with all the things that i've just mentioned we are not going to really be able to effect the change that we need to do. And we're not going to be able, able to, to renovate the system. Innovation, imagination, risk-taking are at the very heart of what we need to, how we need to work in order for us to make it. If we do that, I guarantee you that, uh, I'm almost ca can guarantee you that we will make it. If you look at the tools we have in our hands, and you couple it with a very a reality of nature, which is that the human being has an incredibly strong survival gene that usually only gets um, activated once the knife is really close to one's throat, which is where the knife is right now. When you put those two, two things uh, together, you get, um, you get magic sometimes. And this is what we've been trying to foster here. There is a lot of experience, clearly. I can hear the experience, I can hear your nature, but also your experience is being 40 years career. So I'd be curious to know if, if you could go back in time and see yourself, the young yourself, climbing that ladder on the, on the, on the plane, to board that plane to go and get the, the JPO post, what, what would be the last sentence you would tell him as a piece of advice? 
Stick to your principles. Stick to your values. Make sure that whatever you do is done in such a way that when you wake up in the morning, you look at your, yourself in the mirror, you like, you look at, you like what you see. And sometimes it's going to be tough because there will be a lot of pressures on you to, to toe the line. My advice is toe your own line. If you do so, and if you have integrity and you, uh, you follow that path, you will make it and you, you will be respected and you will be seen as somebody who, whose voice and whose word one can count on who can deliver and who will deliver and who will do what he or she says that they, they, they are about to do. I think that is important, living up to one's own values and principles in such a way that you can stand straight, look everybody else in the eye and know that you know yourself that you are doing the right thing. Thank you. That was Michael Muller, Director General of UN Geneva for the Library Podcast, the next page. Thank you so much for your time.